Father, we ask for your help this morning. Lord, we thank you for helping us to, first of all, to praise your name this morning, to remind ourselves that you alone are worthy of all glory and honor, to remind ourselves of why you created us. Lord, we're not here to fulfill some personal selfish purpose. Lord, we are here to bring you glory and to serve you and to rejoice in you and to love you and to delight ourselves in you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that more and more. So often, at least for myself, we can start to look for our satisfaction in the things of this world. We can start to itch to hear the praises of men for ourselves, Lord. Uh, We can start to exalt others when all of that should be directed toward you. We should find in you our all in all. We should desire to lift up your name alone because you alone have the name that is above every name. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would continue to wean us from the things of this world and to fasten our hearts more and more closely to Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to start looking at the book of Ruth throughout these coming Sundays. We'll, we'll pause to look at the resurrection when Easter comes, but we're going to be traversing through the book of Ruth. I will circle back to some more questions that you guys had submitted. Um, so if your question did not get answered, don't worry, I'm not just ignoring it. I'll come back to it. But for now, we're going to look at the short book of Ruth. So we're looking today at chapter 1 and the first six verses. This is how it reads. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malan and Kilian also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food." I wanted to start off by asking you this morning, what stories do you tend to enjoy the most? What kinds of stories do you most enjoy listening to or reading or watching? Probably most of us enjoy the stories where the main characters encounter some kind of tragedy or danger that seems insurmountable, that it appears there's no way for them to get over the problem in front of them. But then, unexpectedly, out of nowhere, deliverance comes, victory comes. We like those stories the best, I would say. And I find it interesting that those are the kinds of stories we like because 
when we're going through the part of the story that is tragic or sad or painful, if you were to press pause and ask someone reading with you or watching with you, what are you feeling right now? They would probably say, I feel sad or I feel scared. They wouldn't say, I'm enjoying watching this guy grovel on the ground. No, we're, we're feeling the emotions of the character. So it's interesting that those are the stories we enjoy the most. The enjoyment of those stories, though, doesn't really come until the end, when that situation miraculously gets turned around. And I thought, wouldn't we rather read a story that is light and happy all the way through? Wouldn't we rather enjoy that kind of story more? And the answer is no. Why not? Well, it's because the enjoyment that we experience at the end of our favorite stories wouldn't be nearly so enjoyable without the grief and the pain and the struggle that we had to get through before we got to that point. When I was living in California, it was sunny, 90-degree weather every day, all day. But I'm telling you, I, I didn't enjoy the sunshine or the warmth there anywhere near as much as I enjoy it here. And why not? It's because out there, I didn't have to deal with surprise blizzards in the middle of March before I could get to the sunshine of May and June. It's the struggle, it's the bleakness, it's the darkness that makes the enjoyment all that much more enjoyable. Without the darkness, without the struggle, the light doesn't shine so brightly. And in the book of Ruth, we find this kind of story. We find the main characters of this story experiencing tragedy and pain and sadness, and there looks like there's no way around it. But then, at the end, we see God do something amazing. And this story that we're going to look at is not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It's not some fictional short story. No, this is a true story without embellishment. The characters that we're going to encounter in this book are real people, and the events that they experienced were real events. And this story that we're going to read about points ahead to our own stories, our own stories which contain some pages filled with pain, fear, and grief of their own. But if we know Christ, we know how our stories end. They end with joy inexpressible. And this story of Ruth points ahead to that great story that we all are taking part in. So let's begin looking at the first two verses of the first chapter of Ruth. And in these first two verses, the narrator here, he's getting the stage set for the events that are going to take place in this book. He's getting the stage set in verses 1 to 2. Verse 1, let me read that again. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Just some background about this book. This book was written after David had become king. We don't know how long after it was written, but we know it was after David became king because in chapter 4, at the very end, whose genealogy do we have there? 
Solomon's, David's, David's genealogy. So this book was written after David had become king. But it's looking backward in Israel's history. And the narrator tells us when these events took place. These events took place during the time of the judges. And when was that? Well, the time of the judges was after Israel came into the promised land, but before any kings of Israel started to rule. It was during that in-between time period. And what do we know about this time period? I'm going to, throughout this sermon, I'm going to give you some cross-references that you can write down. Uh, I won't have time to read all of it, but I'd encourage you to write them down. And you can write these two verses down from the book of Judges that tell us about this time period. One is Judges 17 and verse 6. That says that in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Another passage is Judges 21 and verse 25, which says the exact same thing about this time period. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this time period in which these events took place was like Israel's wild west. That's the kind of environment that was occurring during this time period. And we also know that this time period was characterized by judgment and deliverance, these cycles that repeated over and over again. Turn with me back to Judges chapter 2 that speaks of this ongoing cycle throughout this time period. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 11. This is after Israel has come into the promised land, after God has started driving out the people from before them, after that first generation has died. Verse 11 says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers." When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. And following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. 
That is the cycle that the Israelites get stuck in throughout the entire time period of the judges. So when you read the book of Judges, you find a very dark picture that is painted of life in Israel during that time. It presents to us an apostate nation, an unbelieving and faithless Israel. And it's during these times, this time period, that the events of the book of Ruth take place. Now, the events that we read of here in Ruth probably took place early on in the period of the Judges. Because when we get to the end of the book of Ruth, we're going to find that Boaz, who's a main character in this book, his dad, Salmon, was the guy who married Rahab. Rahab was the famous prostitute who was spared in the destruction of Jericho right at the beginning uh, of Israel's entry into the promised land. So if that was Boaz's mom, clearly these events in the book of Ruth had to happen pretty soon after that, very early on in the period of the judges. But as we go through this book, we're going to see in this little short four-chapter book, we're going to see three people whose lives shine like brilliant stars in a black sky. In the black backdrop of the period of the judges, these three people that we're going to see, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, they're going to stick out like bright lights. In this little book, we're going to see what loving kindness in a human life looks like when God's people imitate him when they imitate his loving kindness. And most importantly, as we go through this book, we're going to see what God does to prepare for the coming of the king who will lead his people in true righteousness and in true worship of the one true God. This nation that these three people are living in was a nation that had no king. And it was a nation in which, for the most part, the people were all doing what was right in their own eyes. But this nation is going to be given a king who will lead God's people to do what is right in God's eyes. And this little book tells us the true story of how God worked in the lives of three of his people to provide that king to his people. Continuing in verse 1 here of chapter 1, the narrator tells us that at the time he's referring to, the time of the period of of the judges, at that time there was a famine in the land. So he's not just talking about the whole time period of the judges, he's talking about a very specific time when a famine occurred. Now, it may very well be that this famine was yet another way that God was disciplining his people. Under the old covenant, God promised that if his people obeyed him, what would God do? He would bless them. And if they disobeyed them, disobeyed God, what would God do? He would curse them. And some of the curses that are outlined involve him bringing Israel's enemies against them and him giving Israel into their hands. And when you read the book of Judges, you see God doing that repeatedly. He gives them over to the oppression of the evil nations surrounding them. But we also see that famine was another form in which this curse for disobedience would come. 
Uh, if you want to write this down, you can see that in Leviticus 26, verses 14 to 20. You see that famine would be a consequence of disobedience. Leviticus 26, 14 to 20. But you also see it in Deuteronomy 28, and I'll have you turn there. Deuteronomy 28 is another place where we see famine being a consequence of disobedience under the old covenant. Deuteronomy 28. And this is the most famous blessings and cursings chapter. We'll start up in verse 15. God says through Moses, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes which I, with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew and they will perish or they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So you see there that famine would be one of the curses that would fall upon the people if they disobeyed God. And that could be why this famine had occurred at this time in the period of the judges. Back to Ruth 1, verse 1, we are told that during this famine, a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah seeks relief. He seeks relief from this famine by doing what? by going to the land of Moab. And he takes along with him his wife and his two children. Now, there's a certain amount of irony here. Bethlehem means house of bread. Beth for house, Lechem for bread. This famine is so bad that it has even emptied the house of bread of its bread. This family has to leave Bethlehem because the famine has affected even this village. And the spotlight for now is shining right on Elimelech in verse 1. That's where the spotlight in this, this play, if you will, is shining on Elimelech. He is the one who, in response to this famine, has moved his family to Moab. And we're told who his family consists of. His wife and his two sons, and we're given their names in verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. 
Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So it's not just Elimelech himself. It's his wife, Naomi, and it's his two sons, Malan and Kilian. And not only that, but we're told even more specifically that they are Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, what's an Ephrathite? Well, hang with me here. Just going to give you some detail. Ephrathah was the name of the second wife of Caleb. And this is not the Caleb who was with Joshua encouraging the Israelites to trust God and enter the promised land. No, this Caleb that I'm speaking about was an earlier Caleb. And you can read about him in 1 Chronicles. You can write this one down if you want. 1 Chronicles 2 and verse 19. And that verse says that this Caleb married Ephrath. This Caleb married Ephrath, who bore him her. Their son was named Hur, H-U-R, like Ben-Hur. Later in that same chapter of 1 Chronicles 2, verse 50 calls this woman Ephrathah. So she's called Ephrath, Ephrathah. Later in that book, chapter 4, verse 4, says that her was the firstborn of Ephrathah. So this child of Ephrathah, named her, was her firstborn, and it says that he was the father of Bethlehem. The father of Bethlehem. Now, father there may mean founder. So Caleb and Ephrathah had a son named Hur, and he founded the village of Bethlehem. And because of this close association between the names Ephrathah and Bethlehem, Ephrathah apparently became an alternate name for Bethlehem. You see that in various places. So this family that we're looking at in Ruth chapter 1 When it says that they were Ephrathites, that likely means one of two things. Either it means they were from Ephrathah, that is, from Bethlehem, or it means that they were part of the clan of Ephrathah, that is, descended from that second wife of Caleb. So that's that's what is meant when we see here that this family were a group of Ephrathites. Now, a a commentator I read pointed out how how it's interesting that the narrator gives quite a bit more information about where this family came from than where they went. He just says they went to Moab. Well, Moab is an entire country east of the Dead Sea. We don't know where they landed there, but we know plenty about where they came from. And that's not an accident. The narrator wants you to know where this family came from. They were Ephrathites in Bethlehem, in Judah. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, standing on this side of the cross and having the whole Bible in our hands, when we see the narrator talk about Bethlehem and Ephrathah, who do we immediately start thinking about? Jesus. Jesus. And we think about that because of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that famous prophecy that we read every time Christmas rolls around. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, 
His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So that's who we immediately think of, and it's right that we immediately think of Jesus. But the original audience of this book, who are not standing on this side of the cross, they are on the other side. Jesus has not come yet. He has not gone to the cross yet. When they read this book and they see this detail, who do you suppose they're thinking about? Any guess? David. David was born in Bethlehem. David was from Bethlehem. The most famous king in the history of Israel was from Ephrathah, Bethlehem. So that's who they, they would be thinking about. And no doubt, these people who first read this book would also be aware of God's promise to David. God's promise that the Savior, the Messiah, would come from the line of David. So right from the very beginning, in the very first couple of verses, the writer of Ruth has captured the attention of the readers by referring to the place that this family came from. And they're already thinking about the fact that what happens to this family is likely going to have big ramifications for David and his coming descendant. So their minds are already thinking that way right from the beginning. This book of Ruth is going to show the readers more of King David's origin story, which is also part of the origin story of the coming king of kings. That's what we have here in the book of Ruth. Now this family flees famine, and they enter the land of Moab, and they remain there. Now, the narrator doesn't tell us if this was a good move or a bad move. There are plenty of scriptures that would seem to indicate this was not a good move, that they shouldn't have gone to Moab. Moab was not exactly on the list of approved friends that God said Israel could have. Uh, write this one down. Write down Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. Verses 3 through 6. That passage talks about uh, how Israel should not allow Ammonites or Moabites to assemble with them in the worship of the Lord. They, will, they should never be allowed to participate with them in the worship of the Lord. Another passage like that is 1 Kings. And I'll have you turn there. 1 Kings chapter 11. This is where we are told how Solomon begins to stray from the Lord by marrying many foreign wives. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. That says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. So that would indicate that it was not a good idea to move your family to Moab even if it was a time of famine. 
But let me just give you a little bit more information that I think should give us a little bit of pause and just jumping to that conclusion. Not that I disagree with that conclusion, but I think there's more to take into account. Write down 1 Samuel 22, verses 3 and 4. 1 Samuel 22, verses 3 and 4. That passage tells us about how David, when he was being pursued by Saul, sought to give his family protection. And to do that, he went to the king of Moab. And he asked if his family could stay in Moab until God had provided safety from Saul. And scripture doesn't seem to give a side-eyed glance to that decision. There's no indication that that was wrong for David to do. So that makes you think. Um, Also, think about one of David's mighty men, Uriah. He was a Hittite, which is one of those people that you weren't supposed to have anything to do with. And yet, when David murdered Uriah to steal his wife, God doesn't give him a pat on the back and say, good job, you killed that Hittite. I'm glad you did that. No, God is very upset with David for doing that. So I bring these two instances up to show that this issue is not that simple. And the narrator here in Ruth doesn't seem to clear up the tension we feel when we read this. He's not interested in telling us if this was good or bad. He's just telling us what happened. His focus is on the pain and the tragedy that is befalling Naomi. He's not really commenting on whether or not this was good or bad. That's something that we have to infer from other scriptures. So, the stage is set. We have been given information about this family, where they're from, where they are landing in Moab. Next, we come to verses 3 through 5, where we find tragedy strike this family. And we see the grief that it causes Naomi. We see in these verses Naomi grieving the tragedy that has befallen her. Verse 3 says, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. In this verse, the spotlight shifts from Elimelech to his wife, Naomi. And what brings about this shift? Well, obviously, death. Naomi's husband has died. The one who moved her to a foreign land, the one who was responsible to protect her and to provide for her and her two sons, he has died. And the narrator chooses language that heightens our sense of the grief and the fear that must have struck the heart of Naomi when that occurred. He says that she was left. She was left with her two sons. She was left. Something was taken from her and she was left over. An enormous part of her life had been ripped away from her in her husband's death. And she and her two sons are left. But at least she has her sons. Her son's presence in her life speaks of good things yet to come. The presence of her sons assures her that even though her husband is gone, you know, I think things are still going to be okay. Her sons can fill up her life. 
They can protect her. They can provide for her. They can be companions for her. They can get married and bear grandchildren for her. This is hard, my husband dying, but everything's going to be okay. Verse 4, they, her sons, took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Things are possibly looking up. Naomi's sons get married. There is a hope for a future with this family. Now, there is a potential problem here that the narrator doesn't dwell on, and that's the fact that they marry Moabite women. Uh, write down this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 3. In that passage, we see that Israel, when they enter the promised land, was prohibited from covenanting or intermarrying with seven nations. And these seven nations were nations that God was driving out of the promised land because of their wickedness to make room for Israel to come in. And those seven nations were the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, or Jebusites. Now, Moab is not in that list, correct? Moab wasn't a part of the promised land. Moab wasn't being driven out. They're not in that list. But the logic of that passage, that they not intermarry with those folks, the logic of that passage is that the Israelites stay away from those who might tempt them to forsake the Lord. And in passages like 1 Kings 11 that we already read about Solomon marrying foreign women, that logic that we find in Deuteronomy 7 applies to Moabites. So even though Moab is not in that list in Deuteronomy 7, we see the people of God still steering clear of Moabites on the basis of the logic that we find in Deuteronomy 7. And you see that in Nehemiah. When they marry Moabites or Ammonites, they require them to, to put them away. So this seems like it was a wrong thing for Naomi's sons to do. But again, I'm going to give you something else to consider. There were apparently exceptions to this law. For example, in Deuteronomy 21, and we can go there, Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 to 14, We are told that when Israel defeated an enemy in battle, if a woman among the captives caught his eye, he was permitted to marry her. Deuteronomy 21, verse 10, When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them away captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. 
And that very law we see um, play out in Numbers 31. What happens in Numbers 31? You can write that one down. Well, Numbers 31 is when God sends the Israelites to war against Midian because Midian had sent their women to tempt the Israelite men and it resulted in God sending a plague upon the Israelites. Do you remember the situation with King Balak trying to hire Balaam to curse the people of Israel? And he tried it several times, but God prevented Balaam from cursing Israel. Well, apparently Balaam found another way to earn his pay, and he counseled King Balak to send Midianite women to lure the Israelites into idolatry. He said, if I can't get them this way, you can get them this way. And his plan worked. They, they fell for it. The Israelites went after the Moabite women and got embroiled in their idolatry, and God sent a plague upon his people. Well, in Numbers 31, God is executing vengeance upon Midian for doing that to his people. And he sends the Israelites to wipe them out. But after the battle, the captives that Israelites are, are bringing, the Israelites are allowed to keep the Midianite virgins for themselves, presumably to marry. They're allowed to do that with the very people who had lured them into idolatry. So we see that exception play out in that very unique circumstance. There's also the case of Rahab. Who was Rahab? She was a citizen of Jericho. She was a prostitute, a Canaanite. And yet, because she had faith in God, God spared her. And she dwelt with the Israelites, and she married an Israelite, Salmon. And her son was Boaz in this book here. So it seems that if a woman converted to worshiping the one true God, it was permissible for an Israelite to marry her. Now, I, I bring all that up because I want to show that it's, it's not so quite cut and dry. We can't just read verse 4 of Ruth 1 and just assume they, they did something wrong there. The narrator just doesn't tell us that. We don't know if these wives qualified to be an exception to God's law prohibiting them from marrying such women. The narrator just doesn't clear it up for us. That's not his focus. Again, he's just telling us what happened. He's just telling us what happened. And what happened was, if you're still with me, that those two sons married two Moabite women, and the names of those women were Orpah and Ruth. And after they married these women, they lived there in Moab for how long? Ten years. Ten years. Now, seeing as how these men married, both of them married, and seeing as how they are living in this land for ten years, what is the next detail you would expect to hear? You'd expect to hear about children being born to these couples. But that's not what happens. What happens next? Verse 5. Then both Malan and Kilian also died, and the woman, Naomi, was bereft of her two children and her husband. 
So let's recount what has happened to Naomi. First, Naomi encountered a famine, and she had to leave home with her husband to a foreign land. Then her husband died, leaving her with her two sons. And now her sons have died. So another enormous part of Naomi's life has been torn away from her, and she is all that remains of her original family. And the narrator uses that same verb. She was left. She was left. She's all that's left from her husband and her two sons. Or as my translation says, she was bereft of them. And it's clear that her sons didn't have any kids with their wives. So her family has been totally wiped out. There is no one to carry on the family name. And just clue in here, that is the problem, that is the crisis point of this book. Her family is about to be ended. There is nobody who can carry on the family name. And that was a really big deal in Israel. And it was such a concern that when a family of Israel was in danger of being wiped out, drastic measures had to be taken to stop that from happening. For example, if a married man died without having children, his brother was required to take his sister-in-law as his own wife in order to have a son with her and raise him up in his brother's name so that his brother's name would not be wiped out from Israel. We're going to look at this passage later on in the book, but you can write down Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, which describe that process. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. It's called leveret marriage. But leveret marriage does not appear to be a possibility for Naomi. This is why it's such a crisis point here. That doesn't appear to be a possibility for Naomi because the fact is that her two sons were adults. She didn't have any other kids, and we get the sense that she's not able to have any other children. She'll talk about the possibility later in this chapter, but it's said purely hypothetically. It's said in a way to encourage her daughters-in-law to go back. It doesn't appear to be possible for her to just run home, get married to a relative, and have another kid. Not only that, but both her sons have died. She doesn't have any other sons waiting in the wings to take their brother's wives as their own wives and raise up children in their deceased brother's names. There is no way for Naomi to continue the family name. She is the end of the dead end. It is a hopeless situation. And it's also a scary situation. Not only is there no hope for the future for her family, but in the here and now, it's a scary situation because in the ancient world, including Israel, a woman was very dependent upon the men in her life for protection and for provision. And that, that was just the way society worked back then. So when a woman was widowed, she was put in a position where she could very easily be abused or be forgotten. And that is why the law of Moses has so many laws protecting widows. It is because they were very vulnerable. That is the position Naomi finds herself in. Now, at the beginning 
of this story, what did we see? We saw that Bethlehem, remember the house of bread, Bethlehem was emptied of bread in the famine. Now we see Naomi, whose life had been full at the start with a husband and two sons, Naomi has been emptied of those who were most dear to her. There's a parallel between Bethlehem and Naomi. She is now a woman without security, without provision, and seemingly without any hope. There is no future for her family. What we have just read in these first five verses is the greatest tragedy that an Israelite family could possibly experience. But then we read verse 6, where finally we see just a glimmering, a sliver of hope. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Now, it's interesting that there's been no mention of God until this point. And so when we read verse, uh, the first five verses, we're wondering, where's God in all this? Is God judging this family? Has he forgotten this family? Is he going to have mercy on this family? He feels totally absent in these first five verses. But then we read verse 6, and we are told that the Lord, Yahweh, has visited his people in giving them bread. That word for food there at the end of verse 6 is lechem, it's bread. At the beginning of this story, Beth lechem, the house of bread, was emptied of bread in the famine. But now we see that God has graciously begun to fill that house with bread again. He has visited his people. And that is where the glimmer of hope shines through. Because think about Naomi. Her life has been absolutely gutted. Her life is empty. Could it be that God, who is filling the empty house of Bethlehem with bread again, could it be that he will do something to fill up the life of Naomi again? It seems impossible, but with God all things are possible. And this hope seems to flicker in Naomi because instead of giving up, she begins to return from the land of Moab to Bethlehem. By all appearances, Naomi's life had hit a dead end. But with the Lord, there are no dead ends. There are literally no circumstances through which God is not able to work and to use in order to bring himself glory and bring good to his people. And that is something that we are going to see very clearly in this book as we walk through it. And it is a perfect illustration of Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 29, which says, And we know that God causes all things, even losing your entire family. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. As sinners, we are at the dead end of all dead ends. 
We have sinned against the infinitely holy God. And by sinning against God, we have made an enemy of the Creator, the Lord of heaven and earth. And we have incurred his inexhaustible wrath. When we sin against God, we are throwing our lot in with the devil who is guaranteed to lose his war with heaven. As sinners, we are lost and we are empty. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes who we were as unbelievers, as lost sinners in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That sounds a lot like how Naomi must have felt, cut off from her people, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, having no hope, and in those first five verses with no mention of God, feeling that she may have been without God in the world. Well, that is us as unbelievers to the nth degree. How could God possibly turn that mess around? How could God get us as sinners out of that dead end that we had backed ourselves into? Well, God has visited his people in giving them bread. Listen to what Jesus says in John Chapter 6, verses 32 to 35. After Jesus fed the 5,000 with physical bread, and they come to him looking for more. John 6, verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus alone is the bread that can fill up our dead-end, empty lives to the point of complete satisfaction and contentment. How is it that he can be that to us in our situation as unbelievers headed for hell without any way for us to reconcile ourselves to God? Who is Jesus that he could be that for us? Well, he alone can satisfy us because he alone is God who put on flesh in order to give up his perfect life on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus alone rose from the dead never to die again, proving that the price that he paid in giving up his life was enough to save forever all who would draw near to God through him. If you turn from your sins and you come to Jesus by faith, That is you feasting on the bread of life. And if you turn to Christ, you will find he is more than enough to fill you up forever and ever. And you will never hunger and you will never thirst. Let's pray.